Hey, Mosaic family. It's good to see you. It is good to be with you. You know, I, I'm going to have to ask for some, uh, some grace on the front end uh, this morning. I uh, wasn't planning to do this, um, but it's the only way I know how to start this this morning because I can't, I can't fake it for 20 minutes and let you know what's going on later. Um, this morning, uh, it, it's really rough for me. Uh, yesterday, we got a phone call yesterday afternoon and uh, just found out that uh, a really close friend of ours died yesterday suddenly in a house fire. And uh, he's a very close mentor of mine. I, I work with him at the EFCA National Office, and we co-founded the Creo uh, Church Planning Network together, and uh, his wife and I are very, very close to us. And, um, and yeah, it was, came, obviously came as a really big shock to us and, and a lot of people that he had, just a huge impact uh, on their life. We got the call, it happened at like 1 p.m., don't know what happened with the fire. Um, fortunately, his his paralyzed son and his wife were able to get out of the house. But uh, I was sent over a link to the news report in Duluth, Minnesota, as it was happening, and they had live footage of the fire. And uh, just have never seen a, a fire that big. So we spent all uh, all of yesterday and last night uh, on the phone. I called about eight or eight or nine pastors. Uh, some of his closest friends to let them know. So it was a night of crying, and and um, we're going to get up there as soon as we can. But just by means of total disclosure, like getting out of bed this morning was really really hard, and getting up to uh, preach. There's a whenever you walk with somebody through grief, we all feel these things oftentimes. But there's a part of me that's supposed to like chuck this and say this is stupid and worthless. <laughs> Why are we here? You know, all these ex- existential questions that come. You know. What is the meaning uh, of life kind of stuff? Uh, but the truth is, um, Jeff was one of the biggest disciple-making studs I will ever know. And I know this is exactly what he would want me to be doing this morning and give my life to. And, and the truth is, uh, I believe these words. And so this morning, I'm preaching as much to myself as to anybody in the room, and if it's not very polished, then I'm a mess keeping it together, just so you know, that's what's going on. You know, the interesting thing is, uh, we're in this journey that we started last month in, in the book of Revelation, and depending on your background with the book of Revelation, uh, it can be presented sometimes as like a really scary book, uh, almost like a hopeless book, a, a violent book. But the truth is, it was written to give hope to people that were, that were suffering and struggling, people who had lost uh, a really great deal. Uh, we talked about, you know, the, the word apocalypse simply means to unveil. It's, it's an unveiling, a revealing of, of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. And as I read these words, uh, I want you, if you haven't been with us, or if you have, just remember uh, what we're hearing, this is a vision. Uh, this is a, uh, you got to think Picasso when you hear these words. John is being visited, Jesus is being unveiled, and he's doing his best uh, as a man and as an artist to put words uh, to what he's saying. So this is what we read beginning in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering, in the kingdom, and patience and endurance uh, that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. 
which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a, with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his face was like the sound of rushing, or sound, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then he placed his right hand on me, and he said, Don't be afraid, for I am the first, and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. So write, therefore, what you have seen what is now and will take place later. You know, as we get into this letter and journey, uh, John's going to talk to us and describe this future picture of Jesus. But right now, what he's describing is Jesus in the present. And, you know, as we've talked about, you know, the, he is, he's writing to seven churches to be of hope. The whole purpose is to unveil Jesus and give hope to people that are struggling and suffering and it is, it's hopeful and it's encouraging to them, and I think it's meant to be hopeful and encouraging to us. But when I read these words and I think about John and just the place that he found himself as he wrote these words, I can't help but wonder whether this vision was given to John to, to ignite something in him, just as much to anybody else, just as much as to us or those churches, those people that were suffering, you know, to ignite in him maybe uh, the flame of faith, where maybe now there was just a flicker of what once was. And I say that because of what we read in verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in, in the suffering and in the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. And let me just share with you just a little bit of Patmos because it's really, we should hear this. This is where it's coming from. Patmos was a, it was a barren place. It was a rocky, a rocky island 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. Uh, and it was a penal colony. It was a prison camp, a prison island. And one of the ways that Romans, when they weren't torturing or killing people, one of the forms of punishment was to ban, banish people to these, these islands. And if it was a political crime, sometimes they would have the freedom to walk around a little bit on the island. Uh, but when it was a criminal kind of crime, uh, oftentimes it would include being chained up to a chain gang and breaking rocks and really, really hard labor. And, you know, the truth is, we don't know the actual details of what John's life looked like on, on, the, on the island. But what we do know is that he's a long way from home. Uh, he's a long way from the people that he loved. And he's a very long way from where his faith journey began. You know, a lot of people, a lot of scholars uh, are convinced that this John is the same John as the Apostle John, who, who wrote uh, the Gospel of John. You know, which means that John got to walk with Jesus. You know, he, got to, he was a close friend of Jesus. We're told uh, he was described as the, the one that Jesus loved. That means he was there to, to hear Jesus, you know, preach with authority and power. And he saw Jesus do all these incredible things. Um, man, helping the, the lame to walk and the blind to see. Seeing lives changed forever. Seeing the, the dead raised. That means he was there and saw Jesus uh, be nailed to a tree. 
and against all odds, uh, saw him three days later and got to spend time with him. And it also means that John, after Jesus ascended, was there for Pentecost, all right, which was the day the Holy Spirit just was poured out like crazy on Jesus' church, and the gospel and the church went absolutely everywhere. This incredible thing is happening, right? And, and, and all these people are speaking different languages, and 3,000 people are baptized they, that day. They spend all day baptizing life after life after life, right? The kingdom is coming. Everything that Jesus promised, right, is coming to fruition. He said, you're going to do greater works than these. That's why I have to go and send you the Spirit. And yet here we are as much as 60 years later, and John is all alone. You know, there might have been 3,000 people at Pentecost, but there's not 3,000 people mulling about anymore. Right? The, the adrenaline and the euphoria of Pentecost have faded. And many of John's friends had all been sentenced to death. John's sentence was not to die, but to suffer being completely alone, completely ineffective, unable to use his gifts on, by himself on this island. Right? Meaning he would not get to experience the joy of being together as a church family, right? Opening up the scriptures together, praying over one another, singing songs, fellowshipping together. Uh, none of those things. He was by himself. And why is he on that island in the first place? For doing the right thing. For being faithful. It says, I was on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And get this. Just sit on this for a second. Uh, John would never, ever leave that island. Like, his life would end there. Uh, the life circumstances, his, his circumstances would never change. That was going to be his lot. You know, and so when I read this, I have to think that it's very, very likely that John has given this vision, not just to share, but to, to, to light something up in here. And then, of course, he does share those words, and we know that it had a profound impact on the people who, who heard these words. Um, we talked about this just a little bit, but what we know historically uh, is that the storm clouds are building. Right? This is written at the, the end of the first century. In the middle of the first century, Nero started to systematically persecute Christians. And when Domitian took over, uh, he was about to unleash the most catastrophic, nightmarish, systematic persecution of Christians uh, ever in human history. We know that uh, the storm clouds are building, and when those clouds burst, uh, all hell broke loose. We know that the people who would read these letters, uh, these words that John wrote, um, that many, many of them were torn to pieces by wild horses, and that many others would be... Um, they would be impaled on stakes, uh, covered in pitch, and lit up as human torches while they were still alive. Uh, we know that um, others would have holes drilled into their skulls and molten lead poured in there. And that others were just thrown to the lions. How merciful. But we also know this. Right? We, it's so hard to even like go there and experience the suffering and the loss that Rome was dishing out. And, but here's what we also know historically, that because of the way that the Christians faced death, the gospel and the church went everywhere. Right? We know that there was something in the scriptures and in John's words that he gave them that enabled them to, to face 
suffering that is so hard for us to even imagine. And they did it with courage, and they did it with grace, and many of them did it with peace, and many more somehow did it with joy. And that the Romans, when they did this, they couldn't comprehend it. Right? As they watched these Christians face death, it made them wonder, what is going on with these people? Who are they? What is in there? What is this thing that they hold so dear? Right? And so we have to ask, what, what was it that enabled them to face death like that? To face suffering, to face the loss of everything. And I would suggest to you that what John gave, gives them is what we've been talking about, the whole point of the book, the focus, the subject matter. He gave them a picture of Jesus as Jesus really is. Right? To quote Tim Keller, he gave them a view of the exalted and cosmic Jesus, which is such a Tim Keller kind of a thing to say. Right? But this is, this is essentially what the book is all about. And so we have to ask, what is this picture that he's given of Jesus? What is the essence of the message? Right? We read this in verse 8. Who is Jesus? This is who he is. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Right? Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last word in the Greek alphabet. Right? He's saying, I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and I am the end. He goes on, I am the Lord, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Right? And this is a message that's going to keep coming back, coursing through the words of Revelation. He's going to say it again and again. He's going to say it at the end well, again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. Right? And what John is saying to us is when Jesus becomes, when you begin to behold, like, to see him as the Alpha and the Omega, right? you can face, you can face, uh, absolutely anything. Lions, right, being lit aflame, you name it. You know, and so this morning, I just want to sit on this together. The Alpha, the Omega, what does, what does this mean? Right, the, the Alpha, uh, the early church, I believed, they wholeheartedly believed that Jesus was the Alpha. Right, and if you, maybe you went to uh, like, I remember going to the University of Nebraska my freshman year. Maybe you had a professor your freshman year, you know, who suggested to you that Jesus didn't really see himself as being divine. The church didn't really understand him to be divine. That stuff was all concocted later. You know, but if, first of all, there's many other passages that, that we talk about this all the time that would con- conflict this. But this statement right here when Jesus says, I am the Alpha, is the most comprehensive statement that Jesus is God, maybe anywhere in the Scripture. Right, Jesus is saying, I am one with the creator. Right, I, there, I, there is no, I am beginningless. I am uncreated. I was there before anything else was. I am, I am the alpha. Right, so, all right, Aaron, um, that's very esoteric and out there. What in, what in the world relevance does this have to my life? Right, at the very least, I suggest to you what this means is if, if this is true, if this is true, we'll just say if this is true, then it means you've got to start with him. Right? It means our thinking has to start with him. Right? It means our, our, our search for truth and understanding this life has to start with him. Right? Our understanding of ourselves has to start with him. Why we feel the way we feel, why we struggle the way we struggle, why we dream the way that we dream. Right? Why we have the passions that we have passions for. Right? Why certain things never seem to bring any kind of satisf- satisfaction and only bring uh, discontent. Right? We've got to start with him. And it's amazing, you know, like as... 
as people, it's, it, I, we, we exercise endless creativity in utilizing tools to understand ourselves, right, and, and creating tools. So you've got, you know, StrengthsFinder and Myers-Briggs and Spiritual Gifts tests and Prepare and Rich, uh, the DISC profile, the Berkman, the Enneagram, right, all these different things. And where the gut reaction, where we tend to go when we want to learn things about ourselves, right, when we want to understand ourselves is to ourselves, right. But problem is, right, you're not the alpha and I'm not the alpha, Right, if Jesus is the Alpha, our thinking about ourselves, our understanding about ourselves, right, where we fit in the story of creation, where God is taking this thing, has to know this, or it has to start here, right? And so the biblical message is, look, without knowing God, there's no possible way that you can know yourself. Which I know that for some people, if you're skeptic, that's very hard to, to accept. Right, Aaron, I, I reject that idea, I don't believe it. Well, if that's the case, you just have to ask yourself, right, what is your Alpha? Right, just for you. Right, what is your alpha? Where does your story begin? Right, were you created by a personal God or not? You know, and if you're just a mixed bag of chemicals that evolved over millions of years, right, that's going to profoundly affect the way that you understand and work through your life and your struggles. Right, if, if, you're just, if it's all just an accident, then there's really no meaning there. But if you were created by a personal God, Right, then the only way for you and I to know ourselves is to start with him. You've got to know his truth, uh, not our truth. Right? The, the message of the Bible is in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, us. He's the alpha, the beginning. But he's not just the beginning. He's also the omega. Right? He says, I am the first and I am the last. Right? Jesus needs to become your alpha, but he also needs to become your, your omega. And so think about, it, think about it this way. Jesus has to become your, your omega point. Right, and so there's essentially, if you believe that there is a God, there's essentially two different ways that everybody approaches God, and only two. Right, the one, the one way would be to simply, you approach God and treat him as a means to an end. Right, we come to God to get other things. Right, and the second way is that we, that Jesus, or God, is the end, and everything else becomes the means. Right, and whichever one you choose, and every single one of us has to choose that, creates radically different people and takes you to radically different places. You can be a part of the same church. You can be a part of the same small group. You can be a part of the same marriage and sleep in the same bed. Right, but whichever one you choose, whether God is treated as the ends and everything else is a means to get him, or whether he is just a means to get these other things that you feel like you want or need, create completely different people. Completely different people. Um... So, think about it this way, right? Every, bit, every single one of us has what you might call omega points, right? What is an omega point? Omega point is the things in your life that are non-negotiable, right? They're the things that you, have to, you just have to have. And you're going to work as hard as you have to work, search as long as you have to search to get those things, right? And if you have those things, you can endure stuff, right? But if you don't have those things, life is hardly worth living, Right? You're, you're frustrated, you're angry, you're discontent. Right? I, I, life is hardly worth going on and living if you have those things or if you don't have those things. Right? Those, are, those are our omega points. So, so what are yours? And here's why I think this is so incredibly important and why this is relevant to every single one of us. Is that I, I really think this. I, this is certainly true of my story and as a pastor who's walked with many, many people. And I see this everywhere in the Bible. I think for almost every single one of us, we don't set out to make God our omega point, right? He's not the goal in the beginning, 
He's a means. Right, and so for many of us, our faith story, if we had like a microphone and had all day, and we're just going to share the microphone around, and you're going to just share like how you found your way into this journey of following Jesus or wherever you fall in the spiritual spectrum. For almost all of us, I would venture to guess that we would share stories of great loss. We would share stories of maybe when the floor dropped out and things felt hopeless. Or we would share stories where we just sensed that there was kind of like this void in our life. Right? Or, we, or we found ourselves in a place where uh, we, were look, we were struggling with a lack of fulfillment or contentment. Or we were struggling with knowing our purpose. You know what I mean? All these different things that end up kind of bringing us onto this journey. But the problem with every single one of those things is God is the means. And fulfillment, uh, you know, contentment, joy, purpose, like that's actually the end. Which means at some point in our faith journey... Right, that we have to make the shift from just using God to get stuff to using whatever we need to use or, or whatever to get God. Like, he's enough. Like, he's, right, he's the, the omega point. Um, and, and, and again, like, this isn't, this isn't a unique thing. Uh, this is true of so many characters that I see in the Bible. So, for example, just to put some flesh on this, Moses is a great example. Right, if you remember the story of Moses... Moses' countrymen are all slaves under the Egyptian rule. And he decides, right, and through this incredible act of God, he grows up uh, raised by an Egyptian princess. And so he's got an education and training and connections and all these different things that his countrymen don't have. And he decides that he's going to serve God by being a leader, right? He's going to be a hero, right? He's going to lead the people uh, out of bondage and do this incredible thing. And so he concocts this plan, right? And of course, who else would God call? You know, certainly it has to be me, Moses, right? I've got this incredible education through very serendipitous circumstances. I've got connections. Like, who else is going to lead this thing? I'm going to do God a favor and essentially lead my people out. And he has it, concocts this plan. And if you remember, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his countrymen, and he jumps in, and he kills the guy. But Israelites' reaction to him is not to rally behind his leadership, and have this mighty uprising. Instead, they turn to him and say, who the heck are you? Who made you lord over us? And for the first time, Moses is completely vulnerable. Completely broken. If you remember, he has to flee for his life out in the middle of nowhere. Becomes a shepherd, which was like the bottom of the social rung, the social ladder, vocationally. And he's completely broken and angry and feels like an absolute failure. All right, why? It's because... God was not his omega point. Being a leader, being a hero, being an influencer, accomplishing these great things, God was just a means to that. And when that fell through, he found him absolutely devastated. And of course, we know years later, God comes to him at the burning bush. We're talking years and years later, decades later. And says, I want you to be my man. I want you to lead. And in brokenness, after some convincing, he says, fine. I don't have a whole lot left, but you can use me. And to his surprise, at 80 years old, Moses finds all of a sudden he's a really effective leader. And people want to follow his lead. Right? And to his shock, he discovers that real strength is obeying God when you're weak, not when you're strong. Right? And that a broken man is a much more attractive leader than a proud man. Right? And something, he finds something really interesting, too, in this process. And that's when, when leadership or influence was the ends and God was the means, he got neither. Right, but when leadership and influence became the means and God was the end, he got both. 
right, which is so huge. And so th- this is like such a, I think this is such a good heart litmus test. Nobody can force you to do this. But as a pastor, I'll just say, put this out on the table. I see this a lot. Right, you find yourself in a position where you're angry, you're disappointed. Uh, something in your life, maybe a number of things in your life are not going like you planned. You lose somebody that you really care about. Something happens, and you shake your fist at God, saying, how could you? How dare you? I was faithful. I was this. I was that. They were that. Right? In that process, if you find yourself in that place, what that's revealing about my heart or your heart is that we're essentially saying, God, you're negotiable, and that thing was not. Right, that's what I really want. And when you didn't give that to me, right, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm bitter, I'm, a, I'm, I'm disillusioned. And again, here's, here's why I think this is so relevant for us. Regardless of what you're walking through or not walking through right now, every single one of us start our journey as, as, as treating God as a means to an end. Right, but we can't, can't stop there. Right, in Revelation, we're given this incredible vision you know, where Jesus essentially says, look, I absolutely love you. I created you. I knit you together in your mother's womb, right? I died for you also. I redeemed you. I did that. And now I am calling you to live an altogether different life and way, but not so that you can get something else, right? I don't want you to use me to get that. I want you to do it for, for me, right? I, I am the end, right? And here's the difference, and here's, I think, the, the biggest difference uh, and I'm almost done. I, I could just go forever, and I'm, I feel like I'm rambling. The biggest difference <laughs> between what I often see in 2017, right, in the American church, and what I see, you know, that was lived out in these people who received this letter, you know, and in the early church, is that in the early church, as imperfectly as they did, Jesus was not a means to get fulfillment or to get, you know, some sense of purpose or identity or to find community, or to accomplish your goals, or to live your best life now. From the get-go, it was Jesus is the end. He is the omega. He is the point. And if you have him, you will have everything you need. right? But if you insist, if we insist on using him to get something else, and we make anything else our omega point, it inevitably will let us down. And so I'll, I'll land the plane by saying this. You know, if Jesus is your alpha, and if Jesus is your omega, right, Jesus has to be the middle too. And, and I know that might sound like you don't even need to say that out loud, Aaron, but I think I do, and here's why. If you are a skeptic, you're somewhere in the faith spectrum or belief spectrum or unbelief spectrum, you haven't crossed that line of faith, or you have friends, acquaintances who land in that place, right, I see this all the time. People will essentially say, look, I believe it's all an accident. It means absolutely nothing. Right, their alpha point is we're just a mixed bag of chemicals that have evolved over millions of years. You live, you die, you get buried in the ground, you rot, and that's pretty much it. And but then that same those same people in the same breath will start talking to you about uh, what you should believe and what you should value, right? And they, and some of those things are really good things. So they'll say, look, yeah, that's meaningless, that's meaningless, but this middle is meaningful, 
right? And so we're going to, you know, argue for basic human dignity, right, for mutual respect. We're going to fight against oppression. You should work for peace. You should end racism. You should uphold individual rights. You should have compassion on the poor. But you can't make that jump, right? All you're doing is, if you're telling me that your beginning is meaningless and your end is meaningless, right, at least, like Frederick Nietzsche, have the intellectual integrity to admit that your life is meaningless, right? To say that you should, this is right. You can't talk to me about what's right and what's wrong and what we should value or not value. You're just shooting in the dark and essentially just creating your own structures and ideas and asking that everybody else gets on board with those ideas, right? If the beginning is meaningless and the end is meaningless, right, at least Nietzsche was you know, honest enough to say, well, then life is absolutely meaningless, right? That's where that reasoning has to take you. Otherwise, you're just making stuff up, right? Now, the good news for those of us who are followers of Jesus is the opposite side of that coin, and that is that if Jesus is the alpha, right, and if Jesus is your omega, if he is the beginning and the end, if he is the creator who knit you together in your mother's womb, who created you with dignity and purpose and value, And he is the one who will see you to the end. And the end, death is not the end, but only the beginning. If the beginning is meaningful and the end is meaningful, then that means your life is meaningful. Every bit of it. Right? The good stuff and the bad stuff. The beautiful stuff and the ugly stuff. Right? The best moments and the tragic moments that feel senseless. That in the the midst of all of it, that God is at work that he can take something as tragic as losing a loved one or walking through a difficult season or experiencing disappointment and use it for good and that he often does. See, I, I think what the early church got, what John's words gave to these people who lost everything for the sake of Jesus is that they saw a vision of who Jesus truly is, which is not just a man or a prophet, or whatever, great leader. But that in Jesus, we actually get to see Yahweh in the flesh. Which, if that is true, is the best news to ever grace the human ear. Right, that in Jesus, what is God like? Well, he looks like Jesus. God sounds like Jesus. He acts like Jesus. He loves like Jesus. He forgives like Jesus. Because he's the beginning and the end. And if you start looking for this in the scriptures, you'll find it everywhere. And so here's what I want to do as the band comes up. I want to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to read for you a passage out of Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. We read, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. And is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things that we can't see. Such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And he holds all of creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. 
you know, as we sit here on that. I want us to prepare to take communion together as a community of faith. And as we see here first, I want you to do a couple of different things that I just challenge you to sit on. The first is just to sit on this to reflect. Uh, This is such a big, incredible truth that you're not gonna be able to just grasp onto and wrap your head around. It's supposed to make your jaw drop open. Right, and so let God seal this on your heart. Let him, let your sanctified imagination go wild. Let God take your vision of who Jesus is and blow it up and expand it. The second thing I want to challenge us to do as we come to the table is to do a little self-reflection on, on your omega points. Right, where in your life have you been treating God as just a means to an end? Using him to get something else, perhaps then frustrated and angry when you don't get to something else, when he's trying to give himself to you. He is the gift and he is enough. Lord God, as we come before you, ask, Lord God, that you would bring to our hearts and our minds those areas of our life that are maybe our true omega points at times. Lord God, I ask that you would enable us to let those things go, to unclench our hands. Lord God, that you would help us to move from you being a means to an end to you being the end and everything else being a means, a means to you. That you are the point, the alpha and the omega. Well, if you're a guest with us, you're invited to be a part of this too. Uh, That bread, just so you know, that bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. And we dip that in the juice which is representative of Christ's blood that was poured out uh, for you. So Mosaic, if you would stand, we're gonna close and take communion together.